0: Our scripture on this second Sunday after Easter comes from the Gospel according to Luke, the 24th chapter, one of the wonderful stories of resurrection that we find in the Gospels. Hear the word of God. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And they replied, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, the things about himself and all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour then they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, Oh, the Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And then from the 12th chapter of Luke, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already ablaze. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord that you will allow these words to come, to point to the word just read into the word, made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. I came, Jesus said, to bring fire to the earth. I came to bring fire to the earth. On June 19th, 1623, a baby was born to a young French couple and they named him Blaise, Blaise Pascal. It was not long after Blaise Pascal grew into a little boy that it was discovered that he had a brilliant mind, a brilliant mind for mathematics. At age eight, he began to discover properties of geometry without ever having looked at a geometry book. At the age of 18, he invented the first mechanical calculator, shortly after that developed some of the early theories on barometric pressure and by the age of 30 he had created the calculus of probabilities. My guess is he scored pretty high on his SATs. (laughs) Pascal died at the age of 39. He was one of the more brilliant minds to grace the 17th century or any century for that matter. No one who studies mathematics can get away without knowing the name of Blaise Pascal. But it's not only the field of mathematics where one discovers the name of Blaise Pascal, for it was in his early 30s through a series of events that occurred in and around him that Pascal took the great leap of faith and embraced the Christ of Christianity. And for the last eight years, of his life retired to a monastery and devoted most of his remaining days to writing and publishing some of the more brilliant essays on faith philosophy and the knowledge of god he had turned his mind and his heart over to the great pursuit of knowing and following this jesus over those years pascal posited what came to be known later as pascal's wager a rationale for believing in which he said if god does not exist One will lose nothing by believing in him, while if he does exist, one might lose everything by not. We are compelled, Pascal continued, to gamble. Many wondered at how such a brilliant mind like Blaise Pascal, who seemed to have a mathematical world at his fingertips, could leave it all in order to focus his life on the great world of the Spirit. And it wasn't until after Pascal died that they began to understand in part why, because it was after his death that they went through his belongings and found that coat that he often wore, and inside of that coat, Pascal had sewn into the lining... A piece of paper, it was a paper dated November 23rd, 1654, the day when Pascal, obviously had had a deep spiritual experience, and on this paper, sewn into his coat where it would rest right next to his heart, he wrote this word, fire. And then after fire, he wrote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. Pascal had an experience of spiritual fire, an experience so intense that he could see that the world's greatest certainty was God, and it was a certainty that led him to discover, maybe for the first time, that experience of joy and peace. So real was this moment that he kept it sewn right next to his heart, fire, fire. And it was this fire that captured his life for the rest of his days. I came, Jesus said, to bring fire. Which may explain a little of what happened when those two disciples of Jesus were making their way down the road to Emmaus. Strange things had happened in Jerusalem. The rabbi to whom they had dedicated their life and learning had been arrested and put before a kangaroo court and tried and convicted and dragged before the Roman consulate and sentenced and crucified, all like that. These disciples are dazed, they don't know what to do. Rumors of resurrection are in the air. And then this stranger makes his way alongside of them, and scripture says the stranger began to interpret to them all of what Moses and the prophets had been saying. This stranger, whom they came to realize later was the resurrected Jesus, provides them this little Bible study on the way to Emmaus. Now, this is one Bible study at which I wish I would have been present the resurrected Jesus, explaining how the law of the prophets all come together in the person of the crucified and risen one. I would have loved to have been there, not only to take notes, but because later these two disciples say to each other, we're not our hearts burning. We're not our hearts burning. We're not our hearts burning with fire in the presence of the risen one. We're not our hearts burning when he taught us how it all comes together. I have come to bring fire, Jesus says. I have come to, to set your hearts on fire. And the fire comes, it seems, when we understand how it all does come together. Physicists over the last few decades have been intrigued to wonder about what they call the unified theory or the theory of everything, thinking that perhaps there is perhaps a singular theory that explains all the other theories of physics, general relativity, and quantum mechanics. Is there a cause behind all the causes? What's, what's the theory of the when the theory of the Big Bang grew in acceptance across the scientific community and left this big question: Is there something? Is there something before the Big Bang? Is there something or someone who set off the explosion and propelled the universe into motion? Is there an explanation of how it all comes together? Because maybe that's where the fire is. Fire, Pascal wrote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not a philosopher, not a scholar. Certainty, certainty. Feel, feeling, joy, peace. Sounds like he had come upon the the theory of everything. Were not our hearts burning? Those disciples said when the resurrected one put all the pieces together. Sounds like they too had come upon the theory of everything. And maybe that's what Jesus was trying to get us to understand when they put him up for his oral defense and they asked him, Okay, Jesus, what's the greatest command? What's the commandment that holds all the other commandments together? What's the theory of everything, Jesus? And Jesus says, Oh, it's not one, it's two. The theory of everything are the two commandments love the Lord your God with everything that you got and love your neighbor with everything you are it all rests on those two commandments love god love neighbor fire love your neighbor love your enemy love the stranger love the sick love the lonely love the unlovable love the person you don't understand fire When Paul can see the church at Corinth starting to fall apart over squabbles, over spiritual superiority, over who knows more, who has the best answer, Paul says, knock it off. That's a loose translation of the Greek. (laughs) Now, here's the deal, Paul says, there's just really one thing. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Sounds like the theory of everything to me. When the resurrected Jesus pulls Peter aside alongside the shore of Galilee, he asks him one simple and profound and life-changing question. He asks him this question, do you love me? Asked him three times, "Do do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? as if that was the only question that mattered. When the self-described heathen and playboy Malcolm Muggridge gave way to the love of God and converted to the faith and took communion for the first time in a small steeple chapel in Sussex, England, after the service, he said, it's rather like when you fall in love with a woman and ask her to marry you, you know there are no more questions to be asked. When the apostle in 1 John says, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love, that when we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, it sounds like he's come upon the theory of everything Martin Luther King in his great sermon on loving your enemies said it plain and simple, love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ is the most potent instrument available in humanity's quest for peace. This Earth Day weekend makes me think of the great John Muir, founder of the Sierra Club and protector of some of the great American national parks when he said we all flow from one fountain all are expressions of one love. God does not appear and flow out of only from narrow chinks and round board wells here and there in favored races and places. No, but he flows in grand, undivided currents, shoreless and boundless over creeds and forms and all kinds of civilizations and peoples and beasts, saturating all and fountainizing all. Sounds like the theory of everything. In the movie, City Slickers, that great spiritual movie, (laughs) Mitch Robbins, the character played by Billy Crystal, along with some of his friends, are going through a midlife crisis, and they decide to seek refuge out on a dude ranch out west. They're trying to find themselves, and they're not having much luck. The big event while they're out there is a cattle drive that's led by an old crusty cowboy named Curly, Played by Jack Palance. And while they're on the cattle drive, Mitch rides up along Curly. And Curly, who's seen a thousand men like Mitch come out to his dude ranch to find themselves, says, You want to know the secret to life? And Mitch says, Yes. What's the secret to life? And Curly says, It's this. And he holds up his index finger. And Mitch says, The secret to life is your finger. No, says Curly. The secret to life is one thing, just one thing. Stick to the one thing. That's all that matters. And Mitch says, Well, what's the one thing? And Curly says, That's for you to figure out. And that's what the world keeps trying to do, right? It keeps trying to figure out the one thing the theory of everything, the unified principle. We are in this perpetual midlife crisis, groping around for the meaning of life, looking for the one answer. Some say it's Republicans, some say it's Democrats, some say it's more taxes, some say it's less taxes, some say it's more immigrants, some say it's less immigrants, some say it's black lives matter, some say it's blue lives matter, some say it's guns, some say it's no guns, some say it's woke, some say it's no woke, some say it's more books, less books, no books, some say it's climate, some say it's not the climate, and the world falls further and further apart. And Jesus says knock it off because something happened that day when those confused and wondering disciples heard the stranger teach them because he seemed to put it all together and he seemed like and it doesn't take a rock scientist to figure out what he said whoever does not love does not know God because God is love and we're not our hearts burning John Wesley, along with his brother Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley, the composer of our last hymn, the two brothers were founders of the great spiritual tradition of Methodism, the Methodist Church. And when for John Wesley, it all finally came together, he sat down and wrote, I felt my heart strangely warm." which may have been what happened that day on that bus. It was a bus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. John Williams was the bus driver driving his bus on one of those bone-chilling 10-degree Wisconsin days that we've all escaped from. He pulled up at the stop to let the next group of travelers on, on one being a pregnant woman with tattered coat, torn socks, and no shoes. No shoes. 10 degrees, no shoes. John looked in the mirror to see where she sat and wondered what to do, for this was another human being. 10 degrees, no shoes. Was she an immigrant? Was she a Democrat? Was she a Republican? Was she black, white, or brown? Was she woke or not woke? Was she gay, straight, bi, or trans? Did she subscribe to CRT? None of those questions came to his mind. Apparently none of those questions came to Frank Daly's mind, the 14-year-old sitting in the back of the bus, for John could see in his rearview mirror the young Frank Daly, 14 years old, standing up and approaching the frozen pregnant woman, and in his hands the pair of shoes that seconds before had been on his feet. Here, said the boy, try these, and John Williams' heart was strangely warmed wasn't it Pierre Teilhard de Chardin who said someday after we have mastered the winds the waves the tides and gravity we shall harness for God the energies of love and then for the second time in the history of the world we will have discovered fire.